0: The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in front of you. Uh, you can use that. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you can that's yours. Take it home with you um, our gift to you. We've been in the book of Philippians. And last week we talked about uh, unity within the church. We talked about the formula for unity within the church. Paul gave us uh, a formula. He said, if we have a relationship with Christ, if we experienced his love, if we've uh, been given the Holy Spirit, and if we have a burden and a passion for the lost, then we'll live in unity with one another as a church. That all of those things drive us towards unity in other words, if we've truly been saved, unity should be a result of that salvation. Why? Because we understand the gospel. That in comparison to this gospel, nothing else matters. In comparison to the reality of the gospel that God gave his life for you, nothing else in this world matters. And also because we get the urgency. There's an urgency to this gospel. We recognize that we don't have time to argue and fight over frivolous debates. We must labor to advance the cause of Christ, and the truth is is we 've seen a failure uh, w- with this in the church over the past hundred years. Uh, you can just look at how many church splits there have been. Right, it seems like every church you go to is a split off some other church at some point in time. Let me tell you that 's not how it was intended to be it wasn 't intended to be that there would be twelve Baptist churches in one town, and that we would all work against each other. The church should be united together. Not just fellowship united together, but each church should be united together. I'm not saying there aren't times to distance ourselves from other professing believers. There are times to separate. Uh, We went last year, 2020, we did a trip to um, Tennessee, and we're going through uh, some of these old places, and there's this old church, uh, and it's just a few just a few miles down the road from another church, and the people told us that uh, this church was playing. It was called uh, First Missionary Baptist Church, and the, down the road it was the first, uh, or the first Baptist Church, and we found out that the First Missionary Church was a, uh, a, a new church because uh, the Baptist Church down the road didn't believe in evangelism. They literally didn't believe in the Great Commission, even though it's black and white uh, in Scripture, all over Scripture. Uh, And so these people who were going to the first Baptist church said, we cannot take part because you guys do not uh, believe and affirm the things that are true in scripture on these very important issues like evangelism. And so they split off and they created the first missionary uh, Baptist church. So there are times to uh, distance ourselves. That's a good reason to leave. False teaching is a good reason to leave a church. If someone's teaching a false doctrine, if they're teaching and leading you away from the truth of scripture... It's a great, great reason to leave a church, but because your feelings got hurt when something didn't go your way is childish and it does damage to the cause of Christ. Unity is imperative. We must stand together. Paul gave us areas to be united and we talked about those last week. He said, be united in thought. In, in our worldview and how we view this world, we should be united. And what unites us is the truth of God's word. We can't deviate from this. When we untether ourselves from the word of God, then where does that lead us? It leads us to self-worship. It leads us to idol, uh, worshiping ourselves. He also said, be united in love, our love for one another. That's something that should unite us, is our love for one another. And love, we talked about, was decisive. It wasn't just this you know, emotional feeling, oh, I love you, man. We're good. It was a decisive choice to love even when someone isn't very loving. Uh, we ta- he said, be united in spirit and what we're passionate about. We should all be passionate about the gospel. I mean, there's things that we love, right? We love fishing. We love hunting. We love uh, all the things that we do. But we should be most passionate about the gospel. More than anything else in this world, we should be passionate about the gospel. Also, we're united in our purpose. We've all been given the same task to proclaim that gospel. If we're passionate about it, we're going to tell the people about it, right? Uh, And then we're uh, united in our interests. We talked about the fact that we're interested in the interests of others. Unity is so important. It's so important. It's something that Paul tells us to make every effort towards, right? He tells us to labor towards unity because it's so important. And last week, we looked at that formula. This week, we're going to look at the model. and Before we get too far, let me say today is going to be a challenging message. It's going to be a hard message for some of us to hear. In fact, I warred with God all week in my office over this because it was convicting to me. It was convicting my heart. Uh, the Holy Spirit was judo chopping me in the heart all week about this. Because I want to prepare you now this isn't going to be some light, fluffy message where you're like, oh, I just feel so good about myself when you leave. No, my prayer is that you're convicted and that the Spirit of God reveals your sin uh, to you and that, you will, uh, that he will change your heart like he changed mine. In our text, Paul is continuing his thought from last week, so it's important that we view this passage in that context, right? So as we're looking today, he's continuing the thought from last week about church unity, and as we read this, think of, think of that context, All right, so let's read together Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what do we learn from this text? Here's the main point. If you've got t- notes that you're taking, write this down. This is the main point Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model, verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So what is Jesus the model for? For what we finished with last week, verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So this others first mentality is the key for unity in the church. This is a key. This is what unlocks unity within the church is when we're all thinking others first. When we're not worried about our own needs and our own desires and what we want for our life, but we're all focused on the needs and desires of others, then unity is possible. If we're focusing on others, then we're not focused on self. We won't make things about us. We won't get angry as easily. We won't get hurt as easily. We'll let the little stuff go. This is how we do unity. This is how it's done. By thinking of others first but last week we said that living out verse three and four is difficult right it's incredibly difficult to live this kind of life of others first it goes against how we've learned to live life do nothing out of selfish ambition nothing consider others more impor- important than ourselves look to the interests of others before our own this seems so counterintuitive to our way of life Right? The culture that we live in is all about self. Live for yourself. Earn that money. Have a good job. Have a good 401k so that you can retire and enjoy life. It's all about your enjoyment of life. This is what our world teaches. But the scriptures tell us it's not about you. It's not about your enjoyment. And So for just a second, I want us, without making excuses or justifying ourselves, to really think through the implications of what Paul is saying here. What does an other's first lifestyle really look like? What does that really look like to to really live your life for others before yourself? What does it look like to look to the interests of others before our own? It looks like investing in the spiritual maturity of others. It looks like sharing the gospel and teaching and discipling new believers. That's what this looks like. That's what it looks like to to live an others first lifestyle. It means that even after a long day, you choose others. It means that even if you're exhausted, you choose others. It means that even if you're an introvert, you choose others. It means that even if you run a successful business, you choose others. It means that even if you're raising kids, you choose others. Regardless of what you have going on or what's important to you in your life, you choose others. That's what others first looks like. So we can't excuse that away. We can't be like, well, you know, I'm just so busy. I got to No, others first. That's what Paul's telling us. You know how I know the church is failing at this? Because when we need people to do mill trains, it's always the same select few people that do it. When we need volunteers to help teach students and children, it's always the same select few that do it. When we need people to teach groups or disciple new believers, it's always the same few people that do it. When we have new people visit our groups or worship service, it's always the same few people that go and make them feel welcome. It's always the same few people. I'm just so busy. It's hard for me to get up early and be here on time. Oh, yeah, we got sports and stuff, and so it's hard for us to be committed, for us to get too involved. We travel a lot, so you know, it's hard for us to really to invest too much. If we were actually doing nothing out of selfish ambition, if we were actually considering others more important than ourselves, if we were actually looking to the interests of others before our own, we would actually spend time on the spiritual maturity of other people. That's just how it would be. You can make excuses all day about your life and how busy you are. All that reveals is that your priority is not to live the life that God wants you to live. Your priority is to live for self. It's important that we recognize that and and, and accept that that's true about us so that God can begin working on our heart to change us. We would be sharing the gospel. We would be discipling others. We would be investing in our students and our kids. We would be meeting needs. That's what this looks like. That's what it looks like to, 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 to live this other's first lifestyle. And so let's be honest about the fact that apart from one or two hours on Sunday, our lives are lived completely for self. Let's just be honest about that. And as hard as this sounds, Paul says, Jesus is the model. And that we should think as Jesus thought. So how does Jesus think? Matthew 20, verse 26. It must not be like this among you On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Look, Jesus had the right to be served. If anybody has the right to be served, Jesus had the right to be served. But he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is the model. If you wanna be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a Christ follower, if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, then, fo- then, then follow. Right? If you wanna be a Christian, then follow Jesus. Do what he did. Stop living for ourselves and start living for others. So Jesus is the model. How did this model, uh, how did he model this mindset? How did Jesus model this other's first lifestyle? Well, let's look back at the text. First of all, it says that he sacrificed his rights Look at verse 6. It says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And always will be God. He was and is divine. 100% God. This is an important doctrine. It's important that we all Unite under this truth. If, if we deviate from this, then, then we're deviating from the word of God and we are not tethered to truth. It's important that we all unite on this very important doctrine. This is one of those hills that's worth dying on. To say that Jesus was anything else other than God is heresy. And it's important that we stand on that truth. Jesus was God. We know this, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created in him was life, and that life was the light of men, that, that light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. The Word, capital W, is God. What's John saying? Jesus is God. There's no skirting around that truth. You can't skirt around that truth. Jesus is God, he's not just some man that possessed an essence of Christ. Jesus was the Christ. 100% man, 100% God. Jesus was God. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus isn't partly God. He's 100% God. He's just as much God as the Father and the Spirit. There's no like different levels. Jesus is 100% God so what's paul saying in our text even though jesus is god he laid down his rights as god even though jesus was equal with the father he submitted to the leadership of the father when it came to using his divinity jesus laid down his rights as god to reconcile man back to himself john 15 13 greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends jesus had a right to 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 more than a death on a cross He had a right to more than rejection and humiliation. He had a right to more than followers who ran when things got tough. Jesus had the right to be highly exalted above all other creatures and to be at the right hand of the Father. Yet, he laid down his rights to serve others above himself. And if we're going to adopt the same attitude as Christ, we've got to do the same thing. If you're going to be like Jesus and he laid down his rights, then we should lay down our rights. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And what? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him, little children? Let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in deed and truth. Yes, we have a certain right, uh, a right to certain things. But if we're going to be, if we're going to consider others more than ourselves and pursue the same interests of others more than our own, if we're going to adopt the same attitude of Christ, we have to lay down those rights. Carter is our oldest, and he is a very giving spirit. Every year for his birthday, uh, he'll take some of his money and buy his siblings a gift. Um, he'll take. go to the store to spend his money and he buys them each a little something. We don't tell him to do that. In fact, it's his money. He has the right to spend it on himself 100%. And I would never think anything else because I never expected him to do that in the first place. But he chooses to lay down his rights so that he can love his siblings. He just does it. You may have a right to defend yourself when someone's talking about you behind your back but what's more Christ-like? You may have a right to spend your weekends resting or enjoying the things that you love, but what is more Christ-like? You may have a right to pursue success and wealth, but what is more Christ-like? What's more Christ-like is laying down those rights for the sake of others. It's saying, yes, this is my right, but I choose to sacrifice this right for the spiritual welfare of someone else. What if we live this? What if this was true about us, that we didn't live and hold on to our rights like it was so important, but we laid those down as an offering to God and served other people? Jesus sacrificed his rights. Not only that, but he served the unworthy. Look at verse seven. It says, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. So instead of assuming his rightful place, At the right hand of the Father, Jesus emptied himself and served humanity. This is mind-blowing about the gospel that Jesus serves sinners. This is what's so crazy about it. He not only lays his rights down, but he does so for a humanity that doesn't deserve it. Look at John 13, verse 5. Since then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who was bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and You're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of each other. For I gave you an example. Again, there, he's the model. That you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent uh, greater than the one who sent him. Here's the point that I want us to get from that text. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus washed Judas' feet knowing what Judas had already done. Can you imagine? It's already a very humbling act to wash someone's feet. In in this day and time, this was uh, was purely for servants. This wasn't for the rabbi or the teacher to kneel down and wash someone's feet. That was unheard of. But Jesus washes the the disciples' feet. But not only that, he washes Judas' feet in the midst of the pain and emotional turmoil that goes along with being betrayed by someone's someone you love and have given so much to Jesus washes the dude's feet Think about moments in your life when you've been betrayed because all of us at some point probably have been betrayed by someone that we love and someone that we have given to. Here's Jesus has given himself to Judas. He's taught him. He's been a leader in his life. He's invested in Judas and Judas he knows is betraying him and yet he's still in the midst of all that pain and hurt. He still washes Judas's feet. How unworthy was Judas of that experience? Yet Jesus serves him in this way as crazy as that sounds, it's it's just a picture of what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. We were enemies of God, people who had rebelled against him, yet Jesus laid down his rights for us. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the what? The ungodly, that's you, that's me. Christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone might dare even to die but but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners Christ died for us. You were the ungodly. You were the lawless but Christ died for you. You're not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of that. But Christ came to serve the unworthy. So if Jesus is the model, and we're going to adopt the same attitude as Christ, we must serve the unworthy. So yes, someone hurt you, someone betrayed you, Jesus would serve. Yes, someone's own choices got them in the situation they're in, Jesus would serve yes, someone is annoying and difficult to deal with, Jesus would serve. Jesus would serve. Jesus serves the unworthy. I heard this story about this missionary. Uh, His name was Ronnie Smith. Uh, He was um, a missionary in the Middle East, in Libya, and uh, they'd been building relationships with people in the community, had really kind of just gotten to the point where they were just living in Libya. It wasn't, it wasn't as weird or uh, different, but they kind of got a little bit comfortable. And one day he is uh, riding his bike for exercise, and some men pull up on him in a car, shoot him, kill him right there on the spot. And his wife, um, her name was Anita, she almost immediately, uh, she's interviewed by this newspaper in the Middle East. And she tells the newspaper that she has forgiven, not only forgiven, but loves her husband's killers. This is this unbelievable thing for these, these reporters to hear. This thing ends up blowing up in the Middle East. It ends up on like all these uh, national uh, news channels. And she ends up being uh, interviewed on these, on these news channels. And this thing is aired to all these Muslims all over the Middle East. And she gets to share the gospel to all these people because she did this unbelievable act of forgiving someone who was unworthy of her forgiveness. And so they actually did some statistics, and this random lady who's a missionary, nobody knew her, has now shared the gospel with more Muslims than any other missionary that's ever existed because she was broadcasted to to millions of Muslims all over the Middle East. So she has this opportunity to share the gospel in this unbelievable way to the point to where uh, the group that she was with, they, were, uh, they get a phone call from someone who was uh, helping some of these uh, refugees and they end up talking and, and found out that they had heard about Jesus through the news channel, through the news show. And we're like, this lady's unbelievable that she would forgive. Jesus must be real because the lady accredited Christ that the reason she was able to forgive was because of what Christ forgave her of. This is an unbelievable story. Those guys that killed her husband did not deserve her love and forgiveness. In fact, they deserve death. That's what they deserve. And, and if someone killed your spouse, many of us, I think, would well up and want the same thing for the person that did that to our spouse. But Anita chose to serve the unworthy. Jesus serves the unworthy. Man, I'm incredibly grateful that that's true because I know that I am the unworthy. So you want to be like Jesus, lay down your rights, serve the unworthy, and then finally, he submitted to the will of the Father. Look at verse, the second part of verse 7. It says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." Jesus trusted the Father completely. You can look all through the New Testament. You can see that Jesus trusted the Father completely. And because of that, he submitted himself fully to the will of the Father. Jesus was all about submitting to the will of the Father. Look at John 6, verse 38. He says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that... Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus lived his life in full surrender to the Father. Why? Because he fully trusted in the Father. That led to complete obedience. Paul says, even to the point of death on a cross. Dying on a cross was not an easy way to die. It was as painful as any death could be. In fact, the word crucifixion is where we get our word excruciating. When we talk about excruciating pain, that comes from the same word as crucifixion. In fact, excruciate would be literally translated to the overwhelmingly intense pain of the cross. Paul says that Jesus submitted to the Father's will even unto the death of a cross. And we see Jesus' submission in Luke 22, verse 41. It says, and withdrew from them about a stone's throw, talking about from the disciples. He's in the garden. He kneels down. He begins to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was all about obedience to the Father, even when it meant pain, even when it meant humiliation, even when it meant suffering even when it meant death, if we're going to adopt the same attitude as Christ, that means submitting to the will of the Father even when it means pain, even when it means humiliation, even when it means suffering, even when it means death. We said last week that to live with the focus that others' interests are more important than your own, it means recognizing that this life is not about you. It's about the glory of God. The life that you live is not yours. It's been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus and you are to live for the glory of God now. It's not about you. If you're living for the glory of God, then obedience to God is not a difficult thing. And Obedience is all or nothing, right? We know that. Obedience is all or nothing. Imagine if your kids, those of you who who are parents or have had kids, imagine if your kids decided what they wanted to obey and not obey. Imagine if they came to you and you were like, all right, dad, all right, mom, you said do this and this. Well, I'm willing to do this one, but I'm not, I'm not gonna do this one. What are you gonna do as a parent? And minimally, you're gonna get frustrated, more than likely, right? You're gonna get irritated with them. You might even discipline them, hopefully. You're not just going to accept that reality, right? Because nominal obedience is disobedience. You don't get to pick what you're going to obey and what you're not going to obey. That's not obedience. Nominal obedience is disobedience. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. It says, and Samuel said, the prophet Samuel, has has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So, what's going on here? God told Israel to offer up burnt offerings. So, when they're offering up burnt offerings, they are obeying. But the issue is that Israel was nominal in their obedience. They did the things that they wanted to. That's not obedience, that's disobedience. And we're guilty of the same thing today. We think that. We think that we're obeying God by coming to church and trying to be relatively good people. We think that God is pleased with that nominal lifestyle. No. No, if we're, if we're going to have the same attitude as Christ, that means total abandonment to the will of God. There is no place for nominal Christians in the faith. There's no place. It's not a real thing. Because if you get to choose the things that you're going to obey, then the reality is you've never truly surrendered to God. You maybe surrender the things that you're willing to surrender to him, but that's not surrender. That's disobedience. That's rejecting what God wants for your life. That's lawlessness, as John calls it. That's rebellion. Obedience is complete Obedience. That means that instead of just attending church, we're living in Christ-centered community. That means instead of just being a relatively good person, you give your life to the mission God has given you of making disciples and teaching them to live their lives for the glory of God. Nominal obedience is disobedience. If you're just attending church and trying to be a good person, you're a moralist. You're not a Christian. Nominal obedience is disobedience. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the most terrifying scriptures, uh, verses in all all the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who gets to? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform, perform many miracles. And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You, you who practice lawlessness. The will of the Father is that you would surrender your life to him and walk in obedience to the mission that he has placed on your life. That's the will of the Father. If we're going to be like Jesus, that means complete obedience. That means trusting in the Father completely. And there's a reward to that. Look, look at the text. He was set above all other things. Verse 9, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus received the reward for serving others. His reward was to be elevated back to the throne room of heaven. What's our reward for having the same attitude as Christ, for sacrificing our rights, for serving the unworthy and surrendering to the will of the Father? Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Paul says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone. What is that? That's him laying down his rights. Paul's saying, look, I have the right to live my life how I please, but I have chosen to lay my life down and become a slave to everyone. Why? In order to win more people. Paul's focus is living his life to to win more people, to reach more people for Christ, for building the kingdom. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. To, To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Paul lived his life this way. Sacrificing his rights, serving the unworthy, and surrendering to the will of the Father. Look at the text. It goes on. It says, now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we, an imperishable crown, So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's reward was eternity with the Father. And that's our reward as well. The reward for living this life that we're talking about is that we get to spend eternity with the Father. We live this radical life of others first because we're focused on sharing in the blessings, on the imperishable crown. That's what enables us to live this radical life is that we're not focused on the circumstances of this life, but we're focused on the glory of heaven that one day because we've given our life to Christ, because we've surrendered our life to Jesus, because the Holy Spirit has come in and made us a new creation, we get to live this way because we're focused on the reward of our salvation, which is heaven in eternity with God. Others first is how we maintain the unity that Paul is talking about. And admittedly, living a life of others first is is unbelievably difficult. I get that. Like I said, when I was studying for this, there was conviction in my own heart that, man, I miss this sometimes. I live for myself sometimes. I get focused on what I've got going in my own life sometimes. That being said, we can do it. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live this life. That's what Paul is saying. Think like Jesus. Jesus is the model. He's saying, look, here's the model. Here's Jesus. You live this way. There wouldn't be a command to live and think like Jesus if it was impossible for you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're truly regenerate, if you're truly a Christian, you can live this radical way of life of others first. You can do it. Jesus sacrificed his rights. He served the unworthy and he surrendered to the will of the Father. Is this you? No excuses. No justification. Is this you? Do you live in others' first life, or are you getting wrapped up in the things of this world and living for self? The answer to that question is no. The answer. Is not, man, I need to fix myself. That's the temptation, right? When we hear a convicting message, I don't know if it's cultural or what, but, but we're like, man, let me get out my to-do list. Let me read my self-help, my self-help book. Let me, let me figure out to, how to fix myself. That is not the answer to this message. The answer is, man, I need God to fix me. You can't fix yourself, you can't do it, you don't have the power. Only God can change your heart. Ask God to change your heart, that's, that's what these altars are for. These aren't beautiful little decorations that we put here. These are, these are areas where you can come in a symbolic way to kneel before God and ask him to change your heart. And here's the truth of this, this sermon this morning, There's not one person in this room that doesn't need that. If if you're in this room thinking, I'm good, I I don't need that, I'm good, I, I love people, you're lying to yourself. Nobody lives this other's first lifestyle, none of us are. And so the reality, the truth is, is that we should all be on our knees this morning asking God to change our heart. And I get that some people are like, no, nah, I can't do the walk-down thing. Whatever, right where you're at. This is symbolic anyway. Right where you're at, kneel in your heart before God and say, God, I changed my heart. That's what we need. If we're gonna maintain the unity that Paul's talking about, we have to live this others-first lifestyle. We, we, we have to do it. We can do it. That's what Paul says to do it. Others-first is the key to unity within the church. If we're all living this other's first life, then we will live in unbelievable unity, and that unity will enable us to win more people, and that should be our focus. That should be our focus. Paul says if we're truly regenerate, if we're truly saved, then unity should be the outflow of that reality because we're following the model Jesus left us. Would you please stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? This morning I'm going to ask you to to stand there with your head bowed and your eyes closed and have a moment where you really reflect on your heart. A moment where you Right there where you're at, you're doing business with God. Allowing his spirit to convict you and to change you. There's a temptation to push away from that conviction and be like, no, I'm good. Don't do that. Be honest about who you are and where you're at. And allow God's spirit to move and change your heart this morning. if you're willing to say this morning hey look I get it I'm not living another's first lifestyle somewhere along the road I started living for self and it's evident in my actions I can look at my life and and, and realize that there's no fruit of another's first lifestyle if that's you I want to pray for you I'm not going to call you out or actually come down here or anything like that that's up to you but I do want to pray for you and so if that's you if this morning you're willing to acknowledge that that in your life you're not living others first you're you're living for self and you're willing to admit that I want to ask you right here right now to slip your hand up where you're at slip it up I'm not going to call you out I just want to pray for you i want to pray for you if you're willing to slip your hands all over the place you're willing to be bold enough and admit man i'm I'm not doing this there's no evidence of others first life in my in in my life there's no evidence of that hands all the place i want to thank you for being bold enough to, to admit that so again here here's the response to this reality it's it's not man i need to fix myself it's man i need god to change my heart i need god to fix me so if you're not living in other others first life Maybe right where you're at or here in a moment when we sing, these altars will be open. I want to challenge you to present that before God and say, God, I know I'm not living in others' first lifestyle. There's nothing in my life that reflects the fact that I'm living for other people. I'm not serving other people. I'm not discipling other people. I'm not trying to reach other people. I'm so wrapped up in my own world. God, please change my heart. Burden my heart for others. these altars will be open here in a moment when we sing maybe this morning you're realizing that you you don't even really actually have a relationship with Jesus you never truly surrendered to Jesus in the first place maybe you're seeing there's no fruit of salvation in your life Maybe you said a prayer maybe you got baptized maybe you did all of these external things, but the truth is in your heart, you never truly surrendered your life to Jesus. If that's you, we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that. Jesus longs for a relationship with you. He gave his life for you. You're the unworthy. He gave his life for you. Bible says that when we repent of our sin when we recognize that we are sinful beings we repent of that and we ask God to come in and save us and be the Lord of our lives and we surrender to him completely and make him the king of our hearts the king of our lives when we do that the scripture says the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and makes us into a new creation and so this other's first life then becomes a possibility the truth is other's first life is not a possibility apart from Jesus changing you and making you and so if you've never done that, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, and we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that. There'll be a couple of people standing here in front as we sing. They would love to talk to you about that. If you're not willing to walk down, come and talk to us. There's a card in front of you that you can fill out and put. Uh, I'd like to talk to someone about, uh, about my faith. Write down a note, write down your phone number, drop it in the boxes on the way out. Just some way get in contact with us so that we can have that conversation with you. Here in a moment as the band sings, however God is leading you this morning, my prayer is that you'll surrender to that in this moment. That if he's leading you to come to these altars and pray and ask him to change your heart, that you'll do that. If he's leading you to come and to talk to one of these people about salvation, that you'll do that. Father God, we thank you for for the fact that that we can live this, this life that you're calling us to live because your spirit has enabled us to do that as believers, as people who've put our faith and our hope and our trust in you people who have surrendered to you, your spirit has come in and made us into a new creation and we can live this radical others first lifestyle. God, I pray that you would do that in us, work that in our hearts. God, I pray that we would recognize that Jesus is the model. We can continue to, to pursue that reality. And we pray, Lord, that you would you would make that true about us. You would burden our hearts for others. that we wouldn't get wrapped up in our own selves and what we've got going in this life all of the things that this world offers to keep us busy and distracted from what we're really called to do and who we're really called to be. I pray, God, that, that we would see that, that there, there's no life in that, there's no joy in that, that joy is found in living in complete obedience and surrender to what it is that you want for us. God, we pray that you would be glorified in this moment. We pray, Lord, that we would surrender to you. And should we should have prayed. Thank you so much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.